We're going to have some time together now to look at God's Word, spend a bit of time uh, learning from uh, the life of David as we dig back into this today. Uh, this was one that we started actually two weeks ago and took a little bit of a break in between with Easter and Fellowship Sunday, but uh, a kind of God's message to me this week, somebody needs to hear that even if uh, a situation is difficult and it's hard, we need to enter back into it. There is blessing for us entering back into those hard places, and this is one of them. So we're going to do that today. So if you have a Bible with you, would you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12? 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning at verse 1 there. It's on page 222, if you're using this Brown Pew Bible. And when you found that, would you stand with me, and I'll read our passage this morning together. We read this. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said... There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except a little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and grew up with him, and his children had shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him, the most treasured family pet that you've ever had in your life. But think of this. This is what... This is the level we're talking about here. This, this sheep was a huge part of the family to these guys. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for, one, for the one who had come to him. David, obviously... <laughs> burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you, your masters, I gave your master's house to you, your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me. And you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own house I am going to bring calamity upon you. Because before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret. But I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. And as we read the next coming verses here, we see uh, the, the first fruits of David's, the consequences of his sin as the child is struck with illness. And for the next six days, David is just mourning and fasting. He won't eat or, or sleep. He's just lying on the ground, devastated, crying out to God, heal my son, don't take my son's life. And on the seventh day, the child does, in fact, die. 
And we're told that in that moment, although the servants are, are worried, David gets up from the ground when he hears this. He bathes, he changes his clothes, and he goes to the house of the Lord to worship. And he comes home and eats again. And the servants are all confused by this. They're like, I don't understand. Why, why would you do this? Look at verse 22 now. David says to them, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back to me again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. This is the first time Bathsheba is referred to as David's wife. And he went to her and lay with her, and she gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more and just ask God's blessing now on this time and his word that he would show us what it is he wants us to see and grow us in the ways he wants to grow us. Spirit of God, as we come to your word now, we're just asking for a continued presence of your spirit. I believe and know that you are here already, and I'm just asking today, God, as we come to this word that we believe you inspired by your spirit for men to write down, that it has power to affect change in us today, that it has power to break down strongholds, to break down walls, to break chains, and to bring new life, to bring repentance, to bring healing, to accomplish exactly what it is that you sent it out to do. And I believe you have a purpose in each one of us today that you want to do that. That's, that's why we're here. So I pray you to accomplish that purpose in each one of us, God. And as I always ask, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue now to speak your truth? Amen. The play is the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. If you know that line from one of Shakespeare's most well-known and loved plays, Hamlet, you'll know the circumstances in which it was given. Hamlet's father has just died, and within a month, his mother has remarried, he says, with most wicked speed, with his uncle. But one night, the ghost of Hamlet's father comes to him and informs him that actually his uncle had murdered him in his sleep and seduced his mother. So now, Hamlet is, is, is just faced now with the gravest of injustices, and the rest of the play is him kind of trying to seek the accuracy, as this accusation true, and then seeking his vengeance for what his uncle has in fact done. And in this scene in particular where Hamlet speaks that line, the play is the thing where I'll catch the conscience of the king, he, he's faced with this challenging reality, for although He's the prince of Denmark, he's the rightful heir to the throne, and he has this damning information right in front of him. As you can probably imagine, it's not a really easy thing to just walk into the throne room and accuse a king of, of treason, of, of infamy. And so in order to try and verify the story that he's being told, he gathers a group of actors who've come to visit, and they write a play. They perform a play in front of the whole royal court that actually depicts the exact circumstances of the king's sin in, in, in detail in order just to watch him and see what's going to happen. Is his conscience uh, activated? It, does he show signs of, of guilt and conviction when his sin is played out in front of everyone to see? It must have been torturous, awful to, for the king to be confronted and have his sin exposed in this way. And yet, if those accusations are true, 
Justice demands that such deeds not remain hidden, but that he be brought to account for what he's done. Well, we're continuing in our teaching series this morning, as I said, after God's own heart, after our kind of two-week break there, looking at the life of David as recorded in the books of First and Second Samuel. And one of the goals we stated of this series was that we were going to have our idea of what it meant to be after God's own heart expanded as we went through this. And I think particularly when we consider what we looked at two weeks ago with the story of David and Bathsheba, yeah, I think we'd say that our definition of what it means to be after God's own heart has absolutely been expanded as we go through this series, right? I mean, because if you're at all like me, you don't usually associate coveting, adultery, murder, as words that describe someone whose heart is oriented towards God, right? And the reason is, is because they don't. They don't, and yet, even after what David has done, still, he is the one God's word refers to as a man after God's own heart. And so, the amazing news of this passage today for every single one of us here is that because of the unfathomable grace of God and his grace alone, we can still have a description like this be true of us. We can have a description after God's own heart be true of us, even if we've given into temptation, even if we've given into our sinful desires. And you can know that because of what we read here today. If David isn't excluded, even after all that he's done and the vast ways that he's fallen, then that means it absolutely doesn't exclude you either. Which is just to say this, if you have ignored the, the warning signs that God has graciously given, given into temptation, it doesn't exclude you now from being able to have, after God's own heart, a description of you once again. It does not, it's not, that, that's not the point. That's what we've said from the beginning. Being after God's own heart is not living a life of sinless perfection. If it is, none of us can do it. But it is about orienting your heart towards God, or, as we see in the case of our passage today, reorienting your heart back towards God if you've fallen away. That's the grace and the, the hope of this passage for us today. And the pathway, the pathway to that reorientation that we see here in David's life and you can see in your life and in mine today is confession. Confession that then leads to repentance. That is an acknowledgement of our sin before a holy God and then a dedicated, spirit-empowered effort to turn from that sin and orient our heart back towards God. But in order to reach that pathway, in one way or another, all of us will need to be confronted in some way with the reality of our sin, that what our actions are have truly broken God's requirements, broken His laws, and they are sin before Him. We have to be confronted with this reality ourselves, which is exactly what we see happening in our passage today. And so the reason I brought up Hamlet at the beginning there is because very much like him, uh, the prophet Nathan, he also needs a way to help David engage with that pathway of confession and repentance. And he needs a way to confront him with the reality of his sin, but also in a way that's not going to cause Nathan to lose his life at the same time, right? And so he comes to him with this storytelling, and we're going to dig more into how it is that he confronts David with his sin, with a loving, gracious confrontation as we go here. But big picture... 
What I would want all of us just to walk out of here with this morning, just knowing, is this. Confrontation. Whether you're the one being confronted or whether you're the one who has to confront someone else. Whenever grace is accompanied with truth, confrontation is not a battle to be avoided, but a blessing to be received or to be given. But those two key elements are so important. Grace alongside of truth is is the key to confrontation actually being a blessing. And in order to help us see that, I want to show us just two things from our passage. We're going to look at the challenge of confrontation and the blessing of confrontation. Just those two things today. The challenge and the blessing of confrontation. I know that sounds weird. Hopefully you'll see it by the end. So if you close your Bibles, would you open them up again with me to that passage, 2 Samuel 12. Follow along with me as we look at the reorienting power of confession that's brought about by confrontation in the life of this man after God's own heart. Okay, so let's look first of all at the challenge of confrontation. And it is a challenge. The challenge of confrontation. Now, I I know I've mentioned this at least once before here, but the fact remains true to this day that the challenge of waking up the various family members in my households is a precarious mission that requires detailed intel in order to accomplish. Um, My youngest daughter, for instance, I'm glad my kids aren't here right now. My youngest daughter, for, for years, to wake her up in the morning, what she likes is basically to be tackled. She likes you to just pounce on her like Tigger from the Winnie the Pooh movies. That's what she likes in order to be woken up. She's disappointed if you don't. My oldest daughter, however, you can't do that. You've got to come in just gentle stroke on the back. Hey, time to wake up, buddy. Good morning. That's about all you can do. If I was, if I was to try to wake her up the way I woke up my youngest daughter, I'd probably get an alarm clock in the face. <laughs> Different strategies. And my wife, that's a, whole, that's a whole different category, right? I mean... There, all you can do is just leave the offering of caffeine at the altar beside the bed, and you just back away slowly, try not to anger the gods. It's all that you can do. I, I, I mentioned that. The point is, is that just as I know how to wake up my daughters effectively from sleep, so too does our Heavenly Father know how to wake up his sleeping kids which is exactly what we see the prophet Nathan here doing, right in these first verses of our passage, who David, although not physically sleeping, his sleeping conscience is in desperate need of awakening. So look with me there, uh, starting at verse 1. Now, what's interesting is that one of the key distinctives that we looked at two weeks ago that showed that David had become totally entitled in his position was that he was sending people off to do all these things, right? Send someone to find out about that woman bathing. Send somebody to bring her to me. Send somebody this, this, and this. He's sending off people all the time, showing that he kind of believes like, hey, I'm, I'm the king now. I'm in charge. I'm, I've got what's going on here. I'm the boss here now. But what you see now is a powerful contrast as the God of the universe now sends Nathan. That's what we see in verse 1 there. God sends Nathan to David to show him who is actually calling the shots here. And surprisingly, The first order of business for Nathan as he comes to David is to tell him a story. He tells him a story. Look, he says, there was two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. The poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb. 
that he had bought. He raised it, grew it up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. A traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. He tells him a story, like, if you're at all like me, you're just like, what? What are you, what are you doing? What's with this storytelling here? Like, okay, sure, like maybe, maybe David is used to kind of hearing these challenging court cases as the king of a nation. Sometimes these things would be brought to him to make decisions, and there's no question. I think initially that's what David thinks Nathan is doing. He's bringing him a challenging case that he is to provide some kind of ruling on, but that's, Nathan's been sent with a specific job. He's been sent there to confront David with his sin. And unlike Hamlet, he knows for certain. He knows what David has done. He's not questioning. He's not trying to figure out, have you done this? So why doesn't he come in with both barrels blazing? Just like, David, you're a liar. You're an adulterer. You are a murderer. And you need to repent. You need to turn from these things. Why wouldn't he just come in and do what he's supposed to do there? Is he, just, is he afraid? Is he afraid to confront David? What is it? No, I think what we clearly see in these verses is that Nathan understands the task in front of him is conviction, not condemnation. He's come to to wake David up, not to finish him off. And because he keeps that goal in front of him, he's able to be much more patient in the process. He's way more patient in the process. And what I mean by that is this. Nathan clearly sees that David's conscience has been lulled completely to sleep. It is sitting under a a heavy blanket of snow right now. And because he knows that, simply just blasting away at the surface actions, he knows that's not going to accomplish the goal that he's been sent to do. And so the powerful allure of Nathan's very simple story here is that like a fisherman who, who draws the fish out from the deep water... He tells this story, and that as David feels the injustice of this rich man taking the poor man's only sheep, it becomes like a spring thaw, like spiritual CPR for David's heart, so that now, as his sense of justice, as his conscience is woken up, now he can feel the conviction for his own sin, something that he hasn't done for a long time, clearly. So the, the, he initiates the the, the conscience, it's stirred up so that he can feel again, and now he can feel conviction for his own sin. And if you look at verses 5 and 6 here, that's exactly the result. As David, he strikes at the bait, as it were, he, he pronounces this judgment against the pitiless actions of the rich man, stating, as surely as the Lord lives, this man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And if you look at verse 7, that word then, that's key to what we're looking at here. Because what you see is that now that the protective shields, shields are down, as it were, uh, the walls around David's heart have been weakened, Nathan sees that now is the time for direct confrontation of David. Now he can actually receive this confrontation in a way that's actually going to bring about the change. And then if you look in verses 7 through 12, you see that's exactly what Nathan does. He lays out David's sin as well as God's response to what he's done in no uncertain terms. And so we see that Nathan's patient 
process, as we read on, we see it is effective. Right? He does bring about the desired end for which he was sent to David. And we're going to look at that in a second, but before we just move on to look at this blessed results of Nathan's confrontation, I think it's important that we stop and consider what, what does this challenge of confrontation look like in our lives today? How do we experience this same challenge when it comes to something like confrontation? Because on the one hand, the challenge of confrontation for those who are on the receiving end of it, someone who's confronting you or me, is that whenever confrontation comes to us, although confrontation is the very key to unlocking confession and repentance, it's the key to waking you up from your spiritual slumber, of, of initiating the correction course of your heart back towards God, we will applaud, we will celebrate confrontation in the lives of others, and we will completely avoid it at all costs in our own. We love seeing people get, yeah, that's right, he, just, he should be called out for that. But when it's us, all of a sudden we're like, no, no, excuse me? Who do you think you are? You, yeah, what about what you do? I mean, we've got all kinds of things that happen when we're the ones being confronted. Just think about the last time somebody confronted you about something that you didn't want to think about, you didn't want to look at or, or, or address, and they bring it to you. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about then. If you, if you can put yourself in those circumstances... We definitely don't seek out confrontation for our sin. We don't go around saying, hey, would you confront me? Tell me about what I'm doing wrong. That's not our regular practice. And when someone is brave enough, someone is loving and courageous enough to bring something to you, all of a sudden, hang on here, we'll find like a thousand different reasons to just dismiss, discount what they say, have that case thrown out of court, you know, the, the court where we happen to sit as judge, jury, and defense attorney. We'll have it thrown out. We'll say things like, yeah, you know what? Maybe that is true, but I don't like the tone you used when you confronted me about that. So that means I don't have to even look at what you've addressed to me. It sounds crazy, but that's exactly what we do. All that we find any reason not to look at what's being brought to us. And it's just, it's just self-sabotaging foolishness because we, we, we need to be shown these things because we, we're, we're not looking at them. So if you're the one being confronted, all I would say at this point in time is be willing to just look at the content of what's brought to you. Be willing to look at the content and not simply at the conduit or the manner in which it's given. Look at what's being shown to you because you desperately need to see it even if you don't want to look at it. So consider the content. But on the other hand, the challenge of confrontation when you're the one who needs to confront someone else, that also, that's also there, isn't it? This is what Nathan had to go through. And it's something that we can easily fall into two separate dishes on either side of the road as we try to confront other people. The ditch on the one side, and this is by far the most common ditch we fall into, is that we completely lose sight of the goal when we confront somebody. Remember, the goal is supposed to be conviction, uh, not not condemnation. It's supposed to be about seeing change and repentance take place, not adding more shame and guilt onto someone who's already feeling that. But because we lose sight of the goal, your confrontation of someone becomes solely about hammering them with the truth, hammering them with the facts. Look at what you did. Look at how badly you're screwing up here. That's our confrontation, but it's completely devoid of any offer of grace. Remember I said at the beginning, that, that is what we need in order for a confrontation to be effective, to bring about this confession and repentance. We need the offer of grace to come along with it. So, 
I'm not suggesting that this is easy for a moment, particularly if the sin you're confronting someone about is something that's damaged you personally. But if your goal is truly to see confession and repentance take place and not just be right, then you need to honestly ask yourself, is this confrontation I'm bringing to this person, does it include the offer of grace along with the facts? Am I offering the grace that comes along with it? Ditch on the other side, sadly, is you don't actually confront anybody. You, you, you don't even know what this looks like or feels like. And it sounds nice. It sounds kind and loving. You know, we say things like, oh, you know, uh, who am I to confront someone? I know I'm not perfect. It sounds really good, except for the fact that the reason we often don't do it is because it's just simply too costly to us. Confronting someone, bringing it up, you know, it's going to make our, it's going to bring discord in our marriage. It's going to bring, oh, I don't want to deal with the hassle of them. We will say things like, you know what, they never listen anyway, so what would be the point of confronting them? And really what we're doing when we choose not to confront people who need to be confronted is that we close ourselves off. We, we, we really just essentially look away from the desperate need that friend or loved one has for a gracious intervention whether they know they need it or not. When you think about your own life, just how you operate in general, do you see yourself in any of those descriptions? Do you see yourself in any of those? Are you the one that avoids confrontation at all costs? Nobody's allowed to bring anything to you that doesn't match your own self-perception. Are you the one who, who loves confronting people but withholds the offer of grace along with your truth? Are you the one who never confronts anyone? Offering grace, but that never has the truth that maybe that person desperately needs to hear. Do you see yourself in any of those? If I'm honest with you, I see aspects of all three of those things in the way I operate all the time. I fall into those ditches all the time. I fail in these ways all the time. And this week, as I studied this passage, God's word itself was like a, a Nathan to me, a, a minister of, of confrontation to me, convicting me of what was true, but offering that, holding out grace to me at the same time. And it brought about confession and repentance to me. I had to go to some people this week, including God including my wife, including some people, and say, I know I do this. I don't receive confrontation well. I'm a people pleaser so many times. I don't confront people when they need to be. And if any of these descriptions sound like you, then I guess that means God's called me today to be a Nathan to you. And I pray that if you see these descriptions describing you, that it would bring about the same result for you that it has for me this week. Bring about change, bring about the, the, the repentance and confession that comes when we recognize this is true and we turn from it. Okay, so that's the challenge of confrontation. Multiple facets to it, but I think we all experience it to one degree or another. The last thing I want to look at with you is the blessing of confrontation. The blessing of confrontation, and this truly is a blessing. This thing we're so afraid of experiencing and so afraid of rightly offering to someone else who desperately needs it. There's certainly no guarantee. The Bible gives us no guarantee, nor will I give you one today, that if you confront someone with grace and truth, that this is going to be the result. 
They're going to be like, oh, you're right. I have sinned and confess and repent. Maybe not. But what this does show us today, the hope of this passage is that someone who is as deeply uh, uh, asleep, as deeply calloused as David, it is possible by God's grace to see this kind of change come about when you're willing to take, the, take that step and, and try to, to confront them with what they need to be confronted with. If you look at the result of Nathan's careful and patient confrontation, we see it there in verse 13. Brings all these things before him. And what does David say in response? He says, I have sinned against the Lord. He confesses. The result of his confrontation is confession. I have sinned against the Lord. And maybe you read that initially and you think, uh, yeah. You think, David? Like, that seems pretty obvious. I'm not sure. What do you mean I've sinned against the Lord? Of course. But to think that is to ignore the reality that David could have very easily just continued in his hiding. He could have continued in his self-deception, right? He could have just said, this guy's lying. He's not a, he's not a true prophet. He needs to be put to death. Just cover over everything that Nathan has revealed. He could have easily done that. As the king, he had that power. And as I said, Nathan is taking this risk when he comes in to confront David, that that's a possibility, that maybe what happens. But incredibly, as we see in this instance, the confrontation, it does. It brings about confession and then repentance that once again re reorients David's heart back towards God, which is clearly straight away. And what I love about the remaining verses of this passage, it doesn't sugarcoat the whole thing with some kind of Hollywood ending where David is just magically excused from all the consequences of his sin and he and Bathsheba just ride off into the sunset, you know, with some Hans Zimmer soundtrack playing in the background that's not what happens although David is he's forgiven for his sin he says the Lord has removed your sin from you as he turns to God in repentance and he does not die as he had pronounced the one who did such a thing was worthy of the sword we're told will now never depart from David's house which means at least that that struggle conflict is going to be the continued experience now for David both from other nations as well as within his own household the, the sins that David committed with Bathsheba uh, in secret are now going to be committed in broad daylight. This is what happens in the coming chapters as David's son Absalom tries to rip the throne from his hands. This is a, this is a prophecy that absolutely comes, comes to pass. And the life of this child that David conceived in adultery will be lost. This is about as real as it gets. And it shows us while God forgives us of our sins and we can stand faultless before him the consequences of our sins sometimes will remain and there are things that we still have to work through as a result of those choices we've made and yet think about this even in David's weeping and fasting initially there for the life of his son the blessing of confrontation already in his life is that now he's he's feeling something again his his life his heart like the blood flow has been restored to his heart and now he's at last operating like a, a human being again he's feeling things where he had completely blocked himself off before and the greatest blessing of this confrontation and the evidence for you and i today that a restored relationship with god is truly possible even if you have failed as profoundly as david is what we see in verse 24 look there where david and bathsheba are granted another son Solomon, somebody you may have heard of if you've 
read further on in the Bible here. Solomon, who is the very fulfillment of God's promise back in chapter 7, that one of David's offspring would sit on his throne and he would build the house for God's name that David was not allowed to, to build. Now, David and Bathsheba don't know that right here. They don't know who Solomon is going to go on to be. But for those of us, for you and I who do know how the story goes on, what this shows us is a powerful demonstration of the kind of beauty that God can bring out of devastation. The kind of beauty that God brings out of ashes. And let's just take a moment, let's just stop and feel the weight of that reality in our lives. Think about that. I don't know what ways you've fallen today, what, what shame you're carrying around with you today for ways that you've given into temptation, but the hope of this passage for you today is that there is nothing that is beyond the power of God to redeem. There's nothing that relegates you to the trash heap of God's purposes. This is what God does. This is the stuff that he does over and over and over again. We see it in the Bible. God taking absolute train wrecks of people, train wrecks of situations, and turning them into trophies of his mercy and grace. This is what God does. It's what he's done for me in my own life. And I know he can do the exact thing in your life as well. There is nothing, there is no sin that puts you beyond his redeeming grace. But as it relates to all this, when it comes to David's confession in verse 13 here, which was the result, the blessed result of Nathan's confrontation, what I've come to see over time is that in our own lives, we can be as afraid of confession as we are of confrontation. We can be just as afraid of this. And the reason, as late pastor and author Eugene Peterson says so rightly, I think, it's due to the misunderstanding of this story that sees confession of sin as some kind of groveling admission that I'm a terrible person. Confession of sin, that just means I just need to lay down and take whatever blows that God or anyone I've sinned against it wants to give me. That's what confession of sin is opening myself to. And who wouldn't be afraid of that? Who wouldn't be afraid of that? But, as Peterson goes on to say, what those who truly understand this story come to learn is that I have sinned against the Lord is actually full of hope because it's full of God. Concluding that it is only when we recognize and confess our sin that we are in a position to recognize and respond to the God who forgives sin. The blessing of grace-filled confrontation in your life and in mine is that I believe it's the key to unlocking confession and repentance, but it only comes as a result of waking up, of seeing yourself as someone who's in need of forgiveness. And when we, ha- we are willing to re- recognize and acknowledge that need, we come face-to-face with a God who is more than willing to offer that grace and forgiveness to all who come acknowledging that need. As John, one of Jesus' disciples, later writes, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's his promise to us. And yes, yes, I've heard the argument that says that, that David isn't truly confessing here in verse 13. He's not really confessing. He's just being called out and then doesn't deny the truth of it, which, according to some, just eliminates any value to what David's actually done here. 
They just say, you know what, if David was truly sorry, if he was truly repentant, he would have come out and confessed first what he'd done before Nathan had to confront him, which is a sentiment I'm sure that you've felt and maybe even repeated numerous times in your own life when we had to confront someone first before they were willing to acknowledge their guilt. If he was really sorry, he would have confessed first. That's a, a, an idea I'd like to invite you to abandon today. And I say that for two reasons. First of all, the word that we translate as confess in 1 John 1, 9 actually can just as easily be translated as agree or acknowledge, which actually then suddenly fits very well with David's confrontation here, what we read in this passage. Because it's only after David is plainly shown his sin that he then acknowledges it. He agrees with God and Nathan. Yes, I, I have sinned. And because he does that, then David is enabled to repent of his sin, to reorient his heart back towards God. And so if the confrontation is what brings about the agreement and acknowledgement and the resulting repentance, I think that we could say that the result, objectively speaking, is in no way inferior, is it? And I say objectively inferior because I think at the heart of it, seeing confession that comes only after someone has been confronted, it feels subjectively worse, doesn't it? If you have to confront someone first before they acknowledge their guilt, subjectively, it feels less loving. It feels not fair. If they were truly sorry, they would have come to me first and confessed this thing, not waited for me to have to confront them. But I think feeling that way is to ignore the powerfully deceptive power that sin has over all of us that we're all so prone towards. As Peterson, again, notes in his commentary, I love this, the subtlety of sin is that very often it doesn't feel like sin when we're doing it. It feels godlike. It feels religious. He goes on, David didn't feel like a sinner when he sent for Bathsheba. He felt like a lover. And what could be wrong with that? When David sent for Uriah, he didn't feel like a sinner. He felt like a king in control. And what could be wrong with that? Pastor and author Tim Keller adds, your greatest flaws, the habits of your heart that are killing you the most, by definition, are the ones you don't see. That's why they have such control over you, because you don't see them, because you don't want to know, because you don't want to see them, because you don't want to know anything about them. So although it would certainly feel subjectively better to have someone confess to you without having to confront them first, I think we need to honestly look at ourselves and say, is that truly the pattern of my own heart? Do I come to people and just confess the deepest, darkest sins without being confronted first? That's maybe not the standard by which we live anyways. And if that's not the standard by we live, can we honestly require that standard of someone else as the only legitimate way to respond when they sin? This is the blessing of confrontation. In your life and in mine, it's actually what we've agreed to do as a church family in our church covenant, which we're going to recite at the end of this service, to, to expose the truth lovingly of sin in the life of another believer who desires to live like Jesus in a manner, we say, that reflects both grace and truth. 
lovingly confronting uh, uh, someone, an intervention really that enables them to see and we pray turn from that sin which they're blind to, but that's killing them, but that they desperately need to be shown. That's how we've agreed to help each other because we recognize the power of sin to deceive us. We don't come hammering people with facts and we also don't come ignoring them, leaving, to them, leaving them to themselves because we say we're being gracious. We offer grace and truth as a way to help each other live more like Jesus. I pray that you have gained true strength from David's story today, particularly if in your own life right now you're experiencing a lot of shame and guilt because you've fallen in some way. You've fallen to, to lust or greed or anger or fear, whatever it is. To see that that doesn't mean the end of your story as far as God's concerned. It doesn't relegate you to the trash heap of God's purposes. You always have hope to have your heart reoriented towards God as long as you've got breath in your lungs. You remember, even the first time, the first time you reoriented your heart towards God, it was when you were shown the reality of your sin and you turned to him in faith and received the grace of Jesus that's available to all of us. But as I said when we began, the pathway to that reorientation that we saw in David's life today is confession. The pathway is confession, an acknowledgement of our sin before a holy God, and then a dedicated, spirit-empowered effort to repent, to turn from whatever that sin is and back towards God. I honestly believe if we will overcome the challenges of confrontation, whatever they may be for you today, then we can absolutely, by God's grace, also know the blessings of confrontation as well. And there are many. As David's son Solomon later went on to write in the book of Proverbs, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And the hopeful promise of today's passage for every single one of us here today is that whatever Nathan is in your life, whether that Nathan is a literal person, whether that Nathan is the Spirit of God working through his word, whether that's a story or a play, whatever it is that exposes whatever you've been blind to see, whatever you've been unwilling to look at, afraid to see, all those exposing, all those confrontations are the loving, ultimately the loving wounds of a faithful God who 2,000 years ago stretched out his hand and took the wounds that every single one of those sins deserved so that we would always, always find a way back to his heart open. Amen.